recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogonia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, July 21st, 2012. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. Tonight I'm with Sword Brethren, and we're going to talk about a World War II German propaganda pamphlet entitled America as a Perversion of European Culture. The translation of this pamphlet is from the German Propaganda Archive at calvin.edu. I read this pamphlet, and and I'm a little disappointed with it, but we're going to cover it anyway. It's going to give us the opportunity to talk about a few interesting things, perhaps. It's, um, I don't know if it's the translation or the pamphlet itself. To me, it really didn't, I don't know what Sword Brethren thinks about it. I, I have him here with me tonight. To me, it really doesn't live up to the expectations of its title, but it does give us evidence of some of the insight that the Germans had, and and in particular at least one German journalist, into the nature of the American government and the extent of the control of the Jews over that government. I'm going to read the background, unless, Brian, unless you want to read the background that... that, um, the translator at Calvin.edu, Randall, Randall Bitework, I think he, he goes by, what, what he says and, and what background he supplies concerning this pamphlet. Hello. How are you doing, sir, brother? I'm all right. How are you? Thank you for having me on, Bill. And I just wanted to say before we get into the background, there are some things in the article that reveal that the um, German journalist is taking events at face value. For instance, he considers Pearl Harbor to be something that is a negative for Roosevelt, and that Roosevelt is trapped by it and hindered by it, where actually Roosevelt, most certainly, we've established, I think, that he knew it was coming. And by you know some accounts, Roosevelt did everything he could to help it along by weakening the defenses in Hawaii. Well, well right, and it's not perfect by any means. He takes a few other things for granted. For instance, um, he feels that Roosevelt was forced into doing certain things and that Roosevelt orchestrated doing certain things, and when in reality, it, it was not Roosevelt's orchestration, but his own controllers. And he, Well, of course, this gentleman probably wouldn't have known that, though. He would have had no way to ascertain that at the time. As a journalist, you know, maybe in New York, maybe in D.C., maybe in Chicago, who knows where he would have been, but he probably wouldn't have had access to the sort of information he would have needed to make the sort of judgment against FDR that we've since been able to make. Well, well, right, no doubt, but but I, I just aim to point out the journalist's perspective, while he does have a lot of insight into the nature of Jewish control over the Roosevelt administration, it, it's still not a, a, an ideal perspective, right? Sure, and that's for the background. This is a translation of a pamphlet titled America as a Perversion of European Culture. It was published by Robert Lay's Reichsorganisation Sleitung, der NSDRP. It was published around mid-1942. It was intended for those making propaganda. The first page notes that reprinting or giving to those who are unauthorized is not allowed. I would think that kind of goes without saying. (laughs) However, it contains nothing particularly confidential. It is amusing, perhaps, to read the author's description of American housewives who he thinks can only cook from tin cans. Now, if he added 50 or 60 years to that, he'd probably be right on the mark, wouldn't he? Well, well right. And, and you, you know, 
That is, uh, I think Randall Bightwork, the translator who's supplying this background, I think he's really not being honest with that statement, right? So he's, he's trying to make the, the German journalist look ridiculous. Well, well, right, because actually when we read that section of this propaganda pamphlet, it, it's going to say that American women cannot cook without tin cans. That doesn't mean that they're cooking in tin cans or that they're cooking only food in tin cans. Well, when you read the context of the pamphlet, it, it basically intones that American women would be lost if they didn't have prepared food in cans, right? And, and I could honestly say that that's actually true of a lot of American women at, okay. that, uh, at that time. No, at that time, I, I had my, my my paternal grandmother. She, she didn't cook anything that didn't come from a tin can. I'm being honest with you. She was horrible. My grandma and, and she was a, had, I think, several pigs, chickens, and they had a cow too. Well, well, my maternal grandmother was raised on farms, and she was an excellent cook. And 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 my great grandmother hunted her own deer, and, and cooked and and slaughtered and butchered her own deer, and and um. That they did very well because they were raised on farms. My paternal grandmother was raised in the city, and she was dependent upon modern conveniences. It's very plain. All right. The author is not named, but was probably a German journalist who was serving in the U.S. when the war began. The source, and I may butcher this, America als Zirbild Europischer Lebensordnung Schulens Unterlag, number 19, Der Reichsorganisation Leitung, Der NSDRP, Hop Schulensmat, 1942. America as a perversion of European culture. Shall I begin with point one? Yes. Why did the USA become a warmonger? Franklin Delano Roosevelt took office as president in the midst of the worst crisis in the history of the United States. And I'd say that this is clearly a European opinion, though. I mean, they see the economic situation as the worst crisis, where we might see, you know, 1861 to 1865 and 500,000 of the best white men in the country killing each other in a fratricidal war as the worst crisis ever in the history of well, our well, well, to, to keep it in context, uh, I wouldn't consider the Great Depression as the worst crisis in the history of the United States because it was actually engineered, right? It, it wasn't really a crisis. It didn't come about on its own. Maybe in the eyes of the common man, it may have been considered a crisis. But actually, it was the treachery of the Jewish bankers that caused Absolutely. the Great Depression, right? Well, you know, just a, a little perspective. In 1928, I believe a share of General Motors was going for about 800 and a share of General Electric was over $2,000 $2, for a single share. Now, there's no way to explain that away other than manipulation, speculation, and an artificial Jewish bubble. Well, well, from from 1929 through through 1940, that there was you know American industry had no capital by which to hire people to create goods, right? I mean, we were in a depression. That's what the depression was all about. People didn't have jobs, and and, and the gears of the weren't greased by easy money like they were in the 1920s, which, well, the Jews, which the federal banks created from thin air. But the day that the, the United States decided that they were going to sign the Lend-Lease Act and, and send all, 
all sorts of tanks and, and trucks and, and other equipment to the Jews running the Soviet Union, there was plenty of money. There was plenty of money for American corporations to hire workers in order to build those tanks and trucks, right? I think the, um, the Austrian view is that the Great Depression was inevitable and it was the natural result of the market correcting itself from the artificial bubble and the boom of the 20s, which was created by fiat, you know, the easy availability of fiat money backed up by nothing. So the 20s laid the foundation for an inevitable decade-long depression. Well, well, right, but the depression was engineered, and when America agreed to the destruction of Christian Germany, there was suddenly plenty of money in the economy for American corporations to build up the war machine. That's the bottom line. Even still, though, if you look at GDP, the depression didn't rightly end until about 46 to 48, when all the um, GIs who were returning home and had saved up a huge amount of their salaries because they had nothing to spend it on started buying houses, and there was a construction boom. And, of course, people during the war years, due to rationing, didn't have a whole lot to spend their money on, so they saved it, and they contributed to the boom in 46 to 48. And, I mean, we could take it back even further and say in 1913, with the creation of the Federal Reserve and the establishment of control over the money supply in the hands of the Jewish bankers, they allowed free, easily available money from that point on until about 1929, and then they froze the credit market. They just froze the money supply, and all the businesses that had become dependent on the Federal Reserve for money suddenly didn't have it. They were cut off overnight. And it's, it probably goes without saying that this journalist might not, been a, might not have been aware of all the nuances of the Federal Reserve. But well, well, of course not. To return to the article... Most of the world wasn't aware of, the, of that gimmick, right, in, in 1932 or in 1945, right? Most Americans are just starting to catch on now. Although he was not responsible for the severe economic crisis he inherited from the Republicans in 1932, he did not have the strength to lead his nation out of its economic crisis. To the contrary, once he saw that his plans, which went by the name New Deal, were unfruitful, he decided that the best way out was to drive the Western European powers into a war against Germany. That would first enable him to overcome the economic crisis through war profits and second to satisfy the stock exchange and armaments Jews. And I would contend, though, that with the passage of the um, Wagner Act or the um, National Labor Relations Act and uh, all those other, the um, what was it, the CCC, all those New Deal organizations and alphabet soup groups, it's pretty clear that Rosenfeld didn't actually want a recovery. He wanted to use the crisis to push a Marxist agenda and get the American people to swallow something that a decade later they would have turned against immediately. Yeah, you know, this, this, this journalist sees Roosevelt as the driving force here, right? That Roosevelt planned to get us out of the Depression because all of the Bolshevik, all of the Marxist programs that were implemented failed, Roosevelt planned to get us out of the Depression by going to war. And it's really the other way around. The, the Marxist agenda never could succeed, and because the country agreed to go into the war, the bankers loosened up funds, and that got us out of the Depression, well, which is only the war actually ever ever released us from, only our agreement to destroy Christian Germany, through that, that then the bankers were, were um, suddenly interested in rebuilding our industry, right? 
it, it's all it's all a release of capital. I, I mean, the capital is artificially suppressed, and corporations that can't obtain money can't hire employees. It's that's it's that simple. And we live in it seems a society, a civilization right now where we're on a Jewish roller coaster. Every decade we'll have a boom and a bust, a boom and a bust, and they just continually do this. They wipe people out, buy up their resources and their assets and their businesses for a song, and then they inflate the assets and they flip them to someone else and they continue. You know, they lather, rinse, repeat. This just happens indefinitely, and then within two or three generations, they own the whole nation. You want to read the next paragraph? Yes. His election promises forced him to introduce new economic policies to stimulate the economy. Driven by his Jewish advisors, he wasted countless billions in stimulating the economy but could not end the crisis. Instead, the crisis in the United States intensified after 1936. Once again, driven by his Jewish advisors, the only remaining way for Delano Roosevelt to deal with the economic situation was to become a world warmonger. Well, well they, yeah, you know, they, they compelled him to war, and, and that was the only way out of the economy. And the people went along with that because they had been oppressed for 12 years. People, people were, um, yeah, you know, the prospect of jobs and profits, the, the country, through that prospect, the, the nation, many people in the nation suddenly became compliant to the idea of going to war. That's the way I look at it, that the... Um, the Jews wanted to destroy the Jews wanted to destroy Christian Germany the moment Adolf Hitler came to power. The moment the Weimar Republic was taken down, they had a plan to destroy Germany, and Roosevelt was the vehicle they were going to use to do that by. They engineered the depression in order to destroy the will of our people and the independence of our people. The Marxist programs that were play, put into place by Roosevelt as a cure for the economic depression, which was artificial in the first place, those Marxist programs were only a way to condition the people into accepting government as their god and to accepting big government as a solution to their woes. And we see, too, with the so-called temporary social security, here we are. 80 years later and it's not gone or 75 years later and it's still with us well social security is just one tentacle of the beast and, and, and that they've used to, to make the people believe that government is the, the cure all, that government is the answer and, and that leads to tyranny once the people believe that government is their god that leads to tyranny and, and that's what we have today we we're, we're on a precipice we're on the precipice. We might rightly see the government as an octopus with a tentacle in every aspect of our lives and every aspect of society. They provide housing, food, clothing, college education, vehicle subsidies now, cell phones, cell phone cards, electronic benefit transfer cards that can now be used on alcohol and tobacco products because the liberals said that people have a right to, you know, um, enjoy themselves and whatnot. So basically, well, well, it's real simple. When you look to God... For, for your sustenance and, and, and for your hope and, and for your, your well-being in the future, that then you'll submit yourself to the laws of God, right? When the government becomes your hope for sustenance and prosperity, then you'll submit to the tyranny of government. 
do you want men to rule over you or do you want God to rule over you? It's very simple. And, and with the Great Depression, from that time, most of our people abandoned their God and turned to the government. Because they wanted their daily bread from the government. So they'll be slaves to the government, and the government will rule over and regulate every facet of their lives because the government has become their God. That's what happened in the Great Depression. That's what happened in the Roosevelt administration. So America basically, for all intents and purposes, abandoned true Christianity. Well, absolutely. Many people abandoned Christianity, period, except in name only. To prevent a domestic catastrophe, he created a worldwide catastrophe. The publications of our foreign office prove that Delano Roosevelt incessantly incited England and other European states against Germany, hoping to drive them to war and thereby rescue himself. He, seems re he really seems to have believed that he could avoid direct involvement in the war. I don't think he wanted to avoid direct involvement in the war, and he, he didn't believe he could and he didn't want to. He was upping the ante. He had an undeclared naval war going as early as the mid-1940. And when the um, Bismarck made its first sortie, the USS Texas, a battleship that was, I think, launched in 1917 or 1915, I want to say, it was 35 years older than the Bismarck, basically, was on, quote, a neutrality patrol, either southwest of Iceland or just southeast of Greenland, and it was ordered to sink the Bismarck if it came across the Bismarck. And I don't think it would have been any contest if a 35-year-old U.S. battleship came across Germany's newest battleship. The Bismarck would have sank the Texas. But I imagine that's what Rosenfeld was hoping for. He was probably hoping that the Bismarck would be heavily damaged and then the British could finish it off and the Texas would go down in the process. That way there would be no sailors alive to challenge his version of events. There would be no sailors to say, well, we were ordered to engage the Bismarck. That way he could spin any story he wanted, claim the Germans attacked and sank the Texas, and then go to war against Germany in 1940. I wonder if this um, journalist is even aware of Samuel Untermeyer. Samuel Untermeyer, many of the Jews in Europe didn't want war, economic war against Germany, and it was basically um, unilater unilaterally declared by the, the Jewish councils of New York and Samuel Untermeyer, right? Sure. And did I say 1940? I meant 1941. The Bismarck, let's see, in, in September of 1939, Texas began neutrality patrols, and they were ordered to go after the Bismarck, I believe, in April or May of 41, actually. And, of course, the Reuben James was actually sunk in October of 41 when it was trying to torpedo U-55. It was trying to depth charge U-552, and then the U-boat um, in instead torpedoed it. But that was do or die. If you, have a, if you are in a submarine and the destroyer is dropping depth charges, you can either die or do something about the destroyer. Well, well, there's a lot of evidence that Franklin Roosevelt was waging a naval, an illegal and unlawful naval war against Germany. Right, but the policies were driven by American Jewry and not the opposite way around, right? Absolutely, but the people still continued to elect him, so how isolationist could the people have been? If, if Samuel Untermeyer and, and the American Jewish Council or the New York Jewish Council, I, I forget the exact um, specifics of the meeting and, and the council in which he had announced war against Germany. It, it was a public meeting, though, if he announces war against Germany and the administration 
follow suit and, and even to undergo an unlawful naval, you know, campaign and much other treachery, which the Roosevelt administration underwent. Well, well I mean, let's not put the, um, it, it's easy to see who's calling the shots, right? Sure. It, it really is. And I said that I believe Texas had been launched in 1915. I was mistaken. It was launched in 1912. So it was a fairly old, we might even say antiquated battleship. And had it encountered the Bismarck, I don't think it would have been any contest. So Samuel Untermeyer, he was mentioned in Der Ewige Jude, wasn't he? The Eternal Jew. They said he was an infamous German hater. He was agitating more with Germany in the early 30s, wasn't he? I mean, even before Hitler came to power? Well, well, right, and that's what I'm trying, I'm trying to read what's actually in this this pamphlet, this propaganda pamphlet that we're covering, right? Hmm. And the the author, even though he sees the Jewish treachery in American policy and Roosevelt's policy, he, he still um, – presents it in a manner that leads me to believe that he thought that Roosevelt was leading the Jews, you, you know, that Roosevelt was the the catalyst for all of this, and he wasn't. He was only oh. a tool in the hand of the Jews, yes. He was a willing pawn, though, because he was one of them, and he agreed with what they were up to. Well, are you going to continue with the pamphlet? The other nations were to fight for him, providing America with the economic prosperity he had promised just as during and after the World War, when the reparations payments flowed almost exclusively to America. And the huge shipments of war supplies to the Western powers would mean big profits for American armaments magnets. It is also clear that he was unscrupulously planning for the United States to replace England as the leader of the Anglo-Saxon community. Washington was to replace London as the economic center of the Anglo-Saxon world. Now, I would say, of course, it's New York replacing London as the center of the Jewish finance world. Well, well, that's what happened, but when he talks about the World War and reparations payments, he's talking about the First World War, right? Right, England and France. Right. And we might briefly discuss how the reparations payments were used to basically destroy Germany, and the allied countries, Britain and France, had to repay loans to America, and that, of course, resulted in just a, a cascade, a domino effect. When Germany stopped paying reparations payments, Britain and France stopped repaying loans to America, and it just it, it continued. You know what I mean? It was basically a vicious cycle. Well, well, I've recently obtained it. I can't wait to publish parts of it. I, I hope this winter on, on Christogenia. Uh, I recently obtained a book that was published in 1919 that shows that, um, and it's a Jewish book published by Jews and, and for a Jewish audience, that shows that in New York, in 1919, there were 1.5 million Jews. Wow. Well, what's, the, um, well, what's the population of New York in 1919? It can't be 4 million people. I mean, a third of the population, at least, had to have been Jewish. The historic population of New York City. Let's see. Here's a census. 1920. This may take a moment to find, but... If there were 1.5 million Jews in New York alone in 1919, and they are saying that there are only 5 million Jews in the country today, that's a serious underestimate, isn't it? 
Well, well, of course it's a serious underestimate. There aren't five million Jews in the country today. There are five. That there may be five million synagogue attendees. In, in nineteen twenty, there were five point six million people in New York City. In nineteen twenty, and you're saying one point five out of that five point six, you're saying it was twenty six point seven eight percent Jewish. And those are just self-identified synagogue-going Jews. That doesn't even count the cryptos. Right. So New York City is basically the world capital of Jewry, isn't it? Evidently. He goes on to say, Washington, already the capital of the United States, as well as of the Jews and Freemasons, would become the capital of the world. He has a Messiah complex, just as his predecessor, Woodrow Wilson, in whose administration Roosevelt had served as Assistant Secretary of the Navy. And we've pointed out before, it's rather interesting that Churchill was what? First Lord of the um, Admiralty? Admiralty, yes, in, in um, World War I. He was. They, they both worked. That They were both... Um, Roosevelt was, wasn't the Secretary of the Navy, but he was only the Assistant, but he was still in a... Um, in a position of command over naval forces in World War One, he was in a position of authority over naval forces at that time. There's no doubt. Assistant Secretary of the Navy is a, is a um, pretty high position, and and for him, it, it's it, it can't be a coincidence that Churchill was Lord of the Admiralty in England. It won't be a coincidence. Right, that's that, that's too odd a um, situation to be simply a coincidence. And I suppose back then the Navy would have been the most important part of basically any military except those in continental Europe. I mean, America needs a Navy for commerce. Britain, of course, needs one for commerce and keeping open the shipping lanes. So the Navy back then was the primary fighting force for certainly for the British Empire and to an extent for America. It just seems awfully convenient that both of these crypto-Jews were intimately involved in their nation's navies. Well, these men were being groomed by the devil for, for the role they fulfill later in history. And the, no only, the only thing in that little blurb there that Washington is somehow the capital of Freemasonry. I've always thought of London as the capital of Freemasonry. Yeah, you know, I would have to say that that's absolutely true. And again, this is from a, a German citizen who was who assigned. He's a journalist who's assigned duties in America when he wrote this when when he wrote this publication, he evidently had returned from Germany and, and we'll find out as we read it that he was interned by the Americans. So so he must have written this he must have gained somehow gained his release and returned to Germany when he wrote this pamphlet. That that's I'm presuming he returned to Germany, right? That seems to be the case. He, he seems to be talking in his pamphlet about a, a past tense tenure in America where he had been interned. Yeah. So, so um, he's a journalist working in America. He ended up being interned and gained his freedom before the end of the war, and that's when he wrote this pamphlet. And, and he evidently wrote this pamphlet as one who was writing for the German people and, and, and the German propaganda ministry as one who had first-hand experience of, of American politics from a observer's position in America. That's the whole tone of the pamphlet. Proper etiquette when war is declared would be to allow foreign journalists to leave with, you know, the, with the diplomats. 
Well, well, right, but he explicitly says that he had been interned in this pamphlet, right? I mean, if you're an American journalist in Iran and war is declared, unless you're a bona fide spy, I'm pretty sure the Iranians would let you leave. Seems, though, that um, war etiquette is something that America only adheres to when it's uh, convenient for America, or rather the Jews that are running America, to continue. If his plans had worked out, he would have actually been the Messiah who fulfilled the millennia-old dreams of the Jews, that Avashur people. Now, now that term, that, that's a pretty obscure term, right? And um, I, I looked it up, and I came up with a Wikipedia reference that seemed to make sense, so I'll use it here, where it says that at least from the 17th century, the name Ahasver, A-H-A-S-V-E-R, has been given to the wandering Jew by Germans, apparently adapted from Ahasuerus, the Persian king in the book of Esther, who was not a Jew, and whose very name among medieval Jews was an exemplum of a fool. Uh, I'm not really certain about that, but it seems to be that the phrase that Ahasper people does refer to the eternally wandering Jew, right? All right. But the bombs at Pearl Harbor upset all the clever plans of this president of catastrophe in the White House. Until then, no one believed that Japan would dare go to war with the land of unlimited possibilities. Now, I'd like to point out, though, in 1921, in Lothrop Stoddard's book, The Rising Tide of Color Against White World Supremacy, Stoddard explicitly said that war between Japan and America was inevitable and would occur sometime within the next two decades at the, long, at the latest. Well, well I think that Jimmy Doolittle beat Stoddard to that, right? When did Doolittle well, predict war? It, it was. It may have been in, in, right after World War One, or, or or in the very early twenties. But it, it was. Uh, I was always of the understanding that he was the first to actually make that prediction of war between the United States and Japan. Uh, I'd be surprised if Stoddard beat him to it. It would be um, interesting to find out, though, right? Right, because Stoddard wrote the, um, wait, I'm sorry, I said 1921, he wrote it in 1920, The Rising Tide of Color Against White World Supremacy. He basically said that the white race had been in a long decline, and that we'd always been moving west, away from the Asiatics, that we used to own all of Central Asia, all of, you know, Siberia. We continued to move west, continued to move west. We lost all of our holdings in Persia, Afghanistan, northern India, and then finally, when the pressure was too intense, we just went west across the Atlantic Ocean, we spread out, conquered the whole continent, and for the first time in history, we looked west to face the Asians who were now looking east to face us. And that at some point, he predicted that Japan would try and harness the manpower of China, marry it to their industry and their innovation, or their replication of our innovation, and then go to war with the West. And that Japan would launch into an a so-called anti-colonial war to eject all of the European colonial powers, the Portuguese, the Dutch, the French, the British, from Asia, and that the um, white colonies scattered across Asia wouldn't be able to hold out because they only, you know, there might be 10,000 Dutchmen in the Dutch East Indies, for instance, and Stoddard said you can't have a colony run like that. I think, you know, regardless of whether it was Doolittle or Stoddard, several people did predict that there was going to be a war, so this journalist must not have heard of Stoddard, or else he wouldn't have said no one believed that Japan would dare go to war with the U.S. Well, well, it would be interesting if, if Doolittle actually got his information by reading Stoddard, right? And he was credited with, with 
supposedly foretelling of a war with Japan or, or believing that we would be at war with Japan. Well, which he's credited in, in at least in in the um, urban legend view of history, right? Now you're referring to Admiral Doolittle, correct? I believe yes. I'll have to look into that. That's very interesting because it would seem to make sense that he would have read Stoddard at some point. It says here that. He was commissioned as a first lieutenant in the Army Air Service in 1920. I wonder if before that, if he would have even bothered, you know, um, reading Stoddard, or if he would have read it after. Because he was only um, 24 when Stoddard's book came out. It seems hard to imagine a 24-year-old coming up with the theory that Japan's going to attack the United States merely on his own without outside influence. Right, that is interesting. I, I should look into that one day. After the German and Italian notes of 11-12-1941, in which both other members of the Three Powers Pact declared war on the USA, oh, he's using the European Dating Convention. I thought he meant November, and I was wondering if these were warning notes before the war, but he's saying December 11th. Right. Okay. The USA, for the first time, found itself confronted with a two-front war which the American public had always feared. Roosevelt was no longer master of the situation. Pearl Harbor and German submarine warfare made him the prisoner of events. And I, I, I kind of had to d disagree with this, because a, a two-front war for America, it's never going to hit home on American cities, is it? I mean, for the most part, sure, there's a war in the Pacific and there's a war across the Atlantic, but those wars are 4,000 miles from the heartland of the U.S., it doesn't impact the average Joe on the street. Bombs aren't falling from the sky. Shells aren't crashing down. Sure, there's some submarines that are, you know, maybe 10 or 12 German submarines deployed along the eastern seaboard, sinking ships real close to the coast. But the Americans were turning out ships incredibly fast, so they weren't really feeling the crunch. Not at all. So the, the not, Pacific not at all. The war was never felt at home. The Pacific and the Atlantic basically shield the Americans from feeling the effects of wars that they get into or that they start or that they agitate. I'm sure if, if America had shared a land border with Germany, the war would have been over probably in six months when Panzer divisions crossed into America and crushed the military. But the Germans had to fight basically a purely defensive war against America, which could always raise more divisions, equip them with more tanks, and just send them across the ocean, send another division, send another. It doesn't matter how many get wiped out fighting in Tunisia, you know, just raise more and send more, and then you get to invade Sicily, Italy, and France at your leisure. So, I mean, Germany was fighting a strategic defensive campaign. They were on the defensive, and America held the initiative. So I would say that Roosevelt was a master of the situation. He picked where and when to strike. Would you like to take over for point two about economics? Well, right, uh, and, and and I... I, I... That this is interesting to see this that this German journalist's perception. He, he understands the treachery of the Jew. He understands to some degree the hand and the control of the Jew in, in World War II. I think that he's giving Roosevelt too much credit, to be honest with you, because he sees Roosevelt as a driving force rather than a, as a tool. And and this also reveals that because um, America was not master of its economic forces since 1913, right? Roosevelt had been unable to deal with the internal crisis of the United States 
Even after nearly 10 years in the White House, now the crisis intensified. What the results for the USA will be cannot yet be foreseen. It is clear that the American people are at the end of a particularly fortunate era during which they were able to live in luxury. Roosevelt, well, well, that's true of certain Americans, and I think that the journalist was also confident that America would not fare well in the war. He was confident that Germany and Japan would prevail. That's obvious here, right? It wasn't really a matter of human quality or you know, the quality of the basic infantrymen. The Germans were overwhelmed materially. I mean, they built, what, 8,000 Panther tanks and maybe 1,200 Tiger tanks and against, what, 70,000 T-34 tanks and 50,000, 60,000 American and British tanks. There's, it doesn't matter if their tank is five times better. They were outnumbered 15 to 1 at least. You know what I mean? It was, it was basically a material war. And Germany and Japan weren't equipped to produce that level of material because they weren't warmongering powers. If Germany had been intent on launching a campaign of global conquest, they would have gone into a full war footing in 1933 and begun turning out tanks, artillery pieces. They would have built four-engine long-range bombers. They would have built battleships left and right, battle cruisers, instead of building, what, they entered World War II in 1939 with 30 U-boats, a battleship, another one that was under construction, and two battle cruisers and a few light cruisers and destroyers. That's not a Navy bent on conquest, is it? Well, well, we're going to see in, in this pamphlet, it becomes evident several times that the author actually blames the United States for having the same attitude of world conquest, which American propaganda attributes to the German government. That the um, I I don't think with his statements on economic uh, on the economic factor, I don't think that the author understood that the Federal Reserve had the ability to print money to create loans for corporations or not to print money and not to create loans for corporations merely by tightening or loosening the interest rates and the money supply at its own will. And that is how the Depression was orchestrated. That was how the boom years of the 1920s were orchestrated, and that was how the bust years of the 1930s were orchestrated. Well, if I'm, Bill, if I'm a central banker in charge of all the nation's currency, and I have a little click that, you know, help me, and we have our, our own cabal going, and we decide, hey, it's time for a boom, then there's going to be a boom. And when we decide, oh, let's pull the rug out from under it, it's time for a depression, that's how it happens, right? I mean, there's a little clique of bankers, and they, they decide the, the fate of the nation. Well, well what, what, what's going on here is that this journalist doesn't understand that the Federal Reserve can grease American corporations with the capital that it, they need to build up the war machine at will. And that's what they did. With the country in a depression up to the time of the war, the journalist perceives that the country would not be able to create the armaments that it needs to effectively fight the war. That's the journalist's perception here. That's what's being presented here. 
and he doesn't understand that all the Federal Reserve has to do is loosen up the money supply, start loaning phony money to corporations, that Americans would be more than willing to work for artificially created currency, and as long as they could go out and buy some of the luxuries that they had done without through the Depression years, they would be more than happy to work their little asses off for, for this phony money. And, and that's what really happened in, when World War II began. Americans were, were happy to fill their own, body, their own bellies because they had jobs on, on artificial currency that was just suddenly being printed by the Federal Reserve. America is not going to go to war, and, and there's no money, and we're in a depression. And as soon as Congress decides that they're going to sign the Lend-Lease Act or pass the Lend-Lease Act, and as soon as Congress decides that we can go to war, all of a sudden there's plenty of money for everybody. Okay, and Americans were, were able to fill their bellies, so, so they ignored the treachery and, and the criminal acts that were being conducted by their government. So basically, it's the equivalent of you having hard times going on. Someone comes over and says, I'll pay you to kill your cousin, so you take the contract and you go kill your cousin. Well, well right, because now you can go out and buy yourself a, a new car and, and food for your refrigerator, and that, that's all that matters, right? It's about filling your belly. It's not about your kinsmen. I don't think people were starving left and right in the Great Depression, though, were they? I mean, if they were, we probably wouldn't be here now. I mean, if, if there was mass starvation of the sort that happened in, you know, Russia, say, in 1919-1921, where their population declined probably 15-20% in the 20s because of all the chaos in their country. Our population did not decline significantly in the 20s or the 30s, did it? No, not at all. So, I mean, granted, people were out of work and there was hardship and there was suffering, but it wasn't to the extent where people were faced with, oh, we have to go to war or else we're going to starve to death. They chose to whore themselves out for big government and for the international Jew because they wanted goodies. Well, absolutely. And the war enabled their um, being able to acquire those goodies. Okay, Roosevelt had been unable to deal with the internal crisis of the United States even after nearly 10 years in the White House. Now the crisis intensified. What the results for the USA will be cannot yet be foreseen. It is clear the American people are at the end of a particularly fortunate era during which they were able to live in luxury. The truth, I believe, for most Americans was exactly the opposite. That they, they were at the end of a hard era, and because they decided that they were going to join their government and go into war, they were rewarded for it with, with artificial money, and, and all of a sudden the, the, the wheels of the economy were greased. Roosevelt's first problem is to deal with the problems that are coming at him from every side. He had never been able to take the long view of things, but rather has always made his plans from one day to the next. That is not possible in a war. He is the worst sort of amateur. Politically clever, but otherwise weak party politicians of his sort have not been rare, but rather the rule. They all, Roosevelt included, had the luck to govern a land with vast natural resources that should have guaranteed prosperity for all Americans if only these resources had been used for the common good, not given to a small number of Jewish financial magnates. And there he shows a better understanding of, of, of the American economic problem, right? I would say if Hitler had been leader of you know the United States of America, and if it had the uh, even the German population, if Americans and Germans had switched places, and Hitler was ruling over 80 million Germans in the United States with the resources and the space and the territory, he could have taken over the world. 
instance, you know, America was sitting on an enormous amount of resource wealth, arable land, food, everything. Roosevelt didn't have to go along with the Jews and launch the country into a six-year-long war. It wasn't necessary. I mean, imagine all the money spent in World War II, what that could have done if it had been left in the hands of the citizens instead of being extracted in the form of taxation, and they'd been allowed to buy their own homes, build up their farms, build up infrastructure. America could have been the, you know, indefinitely the, the richest country in the world by investing in its future in the 40s. Instead, all that money went into weapons that were destroyed on the battlefield. Well, well right. The, the real investment, though, was the, the labor hours and the natural resources of, of the people who were willing to give those things up for, for artificially created money, right? For, for an artificially created currency. And that right. investment is lost forever. I mean, but, imagine, well, though, I mean, in, instead of spending four years working in a factory, if Rosie the Riveter had instead gone out and engaged in farming or had several children or, you know, educated the children she had better or even engaged in building roads and bridges, we could have had a, an interstate highway system before the 60s. I mean, really, World War II, not only was it a crime perpetrated against the Germans, the Italians, and the Japanese, but it was a crime that the American government or the Jews running the American government perpetrated against the American people. They stole our wealth, and they used it to finance a war against our cousins overseas. Well, well you know, the American people were obviously willing victims, right? Yes. It's, it's like the rape victim that just lays back and enjoys it, right? That's they didn't really they... do anything to stop the situation. That's what they did. For example, the United States should never suffer a shortage of food, and there was hunger in the midst of plenty during the Great Depression. The problems developing since it entered the war result from Delano Roosevelt's chaotic policies. Well, well those problems were actually existing through the 30s, and um, even you know, during the war there was rationing going on because a lot of goods were being requisitioned for the army, right? Sure, and I want to wonder, he, he continually refers to him not as Franklin Roosevelt or FDR, but Delano Roosevelt. Is that to highlight the fact that he's not an American? Well, well it seems to me that, that um, he, he wants to highlight the fact that the, the president has some ethnic ambiguity, right? Hmm. Correct, because Delano is not an American name. It, it's not an Anglo name. Right, and if I'm not mistaken, Rosenfeld is basically what a, a Jew from the Netherlands well, well, you know, I, I don't, yeah, you know, it's, I've seen greater evidence or, or more convincing evidence that if FDR had any Jewish blood, it came from the Delano side and not necessarily from the Roosevelt side. Okay. That, that's, yeah, you know, the, well, I've evaluated it. Uh, I mean, von Rosenfeld, that, that's basically a Dutch name, right? It, it's very possibly a Dutch name. The Jews have used German and Dutch names since they, they've infiltrated Germany and Holland. There's no doubt. But I'm more convinced that if he had Jewish blood, it came from the Delano line. Well, I mean... Some... Sorry, go on. I haven't exhaustively researched it, though. All right. Just a cursory glance on Wiki says that his paternal family had become prosperous early on in New York real estate and trade. Much of his family's wealth had been built by the maternal grandfather, Warren Delano, in the opium trade in China. Right. And that, to and, me, is almost a smoking gun. And, and, you know, the Forbes fortune and certain other American fortunes also came from the opium trade, right? 
they referred to him as being descended from French Huguenots. I don't think hardcore French Calvinists would be involved in peddling opium in China, would they, or real estate speculation in Manhattan? <laughs> well, well, it doesn't seem to make sense. It doesn't seem to add up. It's not impossible, but it doesn't seem to add up. Uh, like I said, I've seen more convincing evidence that the Delano side is the side that Jewish blood came from. Usually, if, if you indeed, find, there is Jewish blood in FDR. Usually you'd expect to find Huguenot immigrants somewhere on a farm or a ranch involved in agriculture, not peddling opium and involved in real estate stock speculation. Little doubt. Many of these problems would only result because of the complete failure of Roosevelt's unscrupulous government. This man is sick in every regard. His infernal hatred against the Duce or, or the Duce Mussolini, and the Fuhrer is probably largely the result of his sickness. His boundless ambition is directly related to his difficulties, as the mass press in the United States regularly observes. The president has the firm conviction that he can deal with the world just as he can has overcome his illness through superhuman energy. And I think that was propaganda that he overcame his illness, right? He never really overcame his illness. He assumed office at the same time as Hitler's seizure of power. Now, now I don't – you know, I read that line before this program when I first read this, this, this booklet, and I don't know if that's the journalist's words because the journalist seems to be kind to Hitler everywhere else or if that's a liberty of the translator. Uh, I would like to, to understand the original German of the pamphlet there. Saying Hitler seized power, that's, a, that's pejorative. Oh, well, yes, it seems to be, but what I'm saying is I'm not sure that would, that's, uh, I have doubts over whether, whether that's the original sense of, the sense of the original German, right? I would the like Ger to see that. The Germans did cast themselves in the role of revolutionaries, though, and in the sense that they came to power in a nation that was thoroughly dominated by Jewry, the National Socialist takeover at the polls, it was a political revolution. It was a revolution well, of the well, voter. It was a political and a spiritual revolution, yes. That, there is no doubt that, that Hitler led a political and a spiritual revolution in 1932 Germany, but his rise to power was strictly democratic. In and legal. There was an election. He did not have a plebiscite. He led a coalition government, and, and, and um, he, he, in 1933, he did have a plebiscite, and, and after the election, the, the National Socialist Party had a clear uh, an astounding majority, and his rise to power was entirely lawful. It, 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 can't, be, it, it can't be characterized as a seizure of power, and I, I would think that I would like to see the original German there and, and study that, right? From the in, day, in a sense, though, he, he, did, he seized the power from the Jews, but he, he didn't take the nation away from the people. You know what I mean? When someone says well, he well, no, power, the people were in power. The, the German yeah. people put him into power. From the first days of his presidency, he was overshadowed by the Fuhrer, uh, uh, meaning the Roosevelt presidency, right? And we have to – Adolf Hitler rose to power. The, the National Socialist Party became the significant party in Germany in 1932, and Roosevelt was elected 
in November of 1932, but didn't take office until March of 1933, right? Or, or I'm, it, it may have been January, or I think the inauguration date 1933 was in March, though. His New Deal, it is Yeah, you're true. right. It was March 4th, 1933. Okay. And, and Hoover was the president until March 4th, 1933, right? His New Deal, it is true, attempted to imitate numerous of the Fuhrer's policies. But what led to success by us was condemned to failure in America because Roosevelt is a man without particular gifts, and because of the particular conditions prevailing in America's model democracy, his plans were not designed for a particular people or race, but rather only for a population consisting of the most varied racial elements from throughout the world. And that, to a great extent, is true, but it's really throughout the white world, because America was, at this time, probably about 90% white, even though there's crypto non-whites amongst the white population, such as Jews and um, Sicilians and other people of questionable, questionable European origin. It was, for the most part, a white nation at this time, right? But it wasn't overwhelmingly one ethnicity from Europe or another. It was, right. mostly, I believe, English, Irish, Italian, and German. Well, what we have to understand, the difference, the, the difference between Adolf Hitler's socialism, although it was geared for one race of people, Germany was pretty much a homogenous society at the time, and America may have been somewhat less homogenous, but it was still a, a majority white, and, and it was, still had a great um, work ethic in the 1930s and 40s. The, the primary difference I see is overlooked by the author of the pamphlet, and, and that was that Adolf Hitler's socialist recovery of Germany was orchestrated without Jewish usury, yes. whereas Roosevelt's social policies were orchestrated by going in debt to Wall Street and, and, and paying them, you know, usury interest, and how can a nation get ahead, get, get ahead and, and recover economically when the government is borrowing massive amounts of money from the Jews, taxing the people for it, and paying usury interest? And it merits mentioning, too, that Hitler's policies were embraced openly by the masses. Rosenfeld's were basically forced on the masses at gunpoint. His gold confiscation, his, Roosevelt passed the first major federal gun control bill, the 1934 National Firearms Act, while Hitler was loosening gun laws, lowered the concealed carry age to 18, and allowed 18-year-olds to um, carry pistols for the first time. Hitler wasn't afraid of an armed populace because he wasn't a tyrant. Roosevelt didn't want anybody being armed with anything that they could use to oppose him. Well, well the Weimar government had already forbid guns in Germany for many years, right? <laughs> Before Hitler came to power. But there was private firearms ownership under the National Socialists, no doubt. We don't hear about that, though, because then people would wonder, well, why didn't anybody go after Hitler with the guns they had? And then they'd have to deal with the issue that people didn't want to go after Hitler because he was saving them and their nation, and they valued what he was doing. Well, well there's countless hours of news footage uh, of Adolf Hitler walking around Germany virtually adored by, by the entire citizenry and, and, and without and any, any 
precautions of, of protection, right? Without any great security forces, he, he walked freely among, amongst his people, and he was worshipped, practically. Riding around in open-top cars, walking around in open areas in the public. I don't think Roosevelt would have ever done that. I know Stalin never would have done that. His plans were condemned to failure, for he never had the ability to lead. The only chance was dictatorial measures. And Roosevelt's measures were virtually dictatorial. However, it, it's, you, can't, you can't lead any nation into economic prosperity under Jewish usury. It, it, it's, it, it's an oxymoron, right? It just doesn't work. Well, look what he did. I mean, they say that Hitler was a tyrant. When Rosenfeld tried to pass the National Labor Relations Act and some other unconstitutional legislation, the Supreme Court was ready to vote against it, and he was going to pack them with, what, four or five more justices and force some of the older conservative ones to retire. If that's not the act of a tyrant and a dictator, what is? Remember, Bill, the um, switch in time that saved the nine? Well, I guess you wouldn't remember it because it was like, what, 30 years before you were born, but, I mean, you've probably read about it. The bizarre vanity of the man in the White House has been seriously wounded, which is why he hates the Fuhrer and Duce so much. He has the sick wish to destroy Europe's leading personalities. And that's another subjective um, statement on the part of the author, but, but well, well, of course it's true. He wanted to destroy Europe, not only Europe's leading personalities. And for some reason he wanted to destroy Japan, too. I mean, obviously the war against Japan, we can't cast that in the context of an anti-white war. It's not a war against white people, but for some reason the, the Jews wanted to tear down Japan. You know, well, well the, the Jews had built up Japan. Yeah, but they only built up Japan to weaken Russia, and that had already been done. Russia was now communist, so a strong Japan was no longer needed. Maybe they saw Japan as a renegade nation that would threaten their interests in East Asia. Well, well, you know what? I don't have a good grip on internal Japanese history in the 20th century, right? I mean, there must be something there. But the Jews had built up Japan. Jewish and, and, and Rothschild capital had, had created Japan's big corporations, right? Yeah. And most of those corporations began as basic, basically subsidiary, subsidiaries of Western corporations. I mean... JVC is Japan Victor Corporation, and, and that began as an offshoot of RCA Victor. And, and um, well, well I, I'm, I'm persuaded to believe that Sony was an anagram for Standard Oil of New York. I know there are alternate explanations. There are people that deny that. I haven't investigated that deeply enough. But NTT, Nippon, Telephone, and Telegraph started out as an offshoot of AT&T, American Telephone and Telegraph, Many of those, Jap those large Japanese corporations started out with technology and capital and a transfer of knowledge from the West. I believe, though, in the 20s, with the rise of the nationalists and the traditionalists in Japan, there was the threat that they were going to take away those companies from the Jews and basically run them for the benefit of the Japanese, you know, nationalize the assets. Well, well, that might be possible, but I don't know enough about it to comment on it. All right. That there's no doubt that the Rothschilds built up the Japanese in order to help tear down Tsarist Russia. 
and that had already been accomplished, and Japan was probably an ongoing threat to their empire, say in French Indochina, the Dutch East Indies, British Malaya, Hong Kong, etc. Shall I take over for point three? Yes. The Jews alone drove President Delano Roosevelt into war. Roosevelt's bosses, while he was developing his war plans, were Jews. They incessantly drove the president further along his twisted path. Bullitt, whose criminal actions as special ambassador and confident, confidant of the president are proven by the documents, began to spin his web in wars on Paris. Bernard Baruch, once called a speculator by a Senate committee, gave the White House advice on foreign policy. Felix Frankfurter was appointed to the Supreme Court to see to it that Roosevelt's actions were not overturned by the highest court in the United States. Well, well, let's talk about Bullitt. Before we get too far ahead, I'd like to talk about Bullitt. i got a couple of quotes here, right? He's talking about William Bullitt's criminal actions here. And there's um, you know, a lot of evidence that Roosevelt had helped in, in the agitation of Poland to... Um, a bellicose attitude against Germany. And Poland clearly had a bellicose attitude towards Germany and, and was used as the catalyst to officially start um, hostilities between the West and Germany. Well, and I'm going to quote from Conservapedia, and this is actually from an article that we had covered back when we covered Alger Hiss on, on your programs last year, right? Before we get into that, just from Wikipedia, there's something pretty startling about this Bullock character. It says that he was sent on behalf of Wilson to negotiate a special diplomatic mission with the Bolsheviks. He was desperately trying to convince Wilson to support the establishment of relations with the Bolshevik government. He failed, and then he resigned in protest. So this guy had to be a hardcore communist. Well, well he was also part Jewish, and... I'm going to quote something. Before I go to Conservapedia now, I'm going to quote something from thehandstand.org that seems to be quite well documented, where it says, like Roosevelt, Bullitt rose from the rich. He was born into an important Philadelphia banking family, one of the city's wealthiest. His mother's grandfather was Jonathan Horowitz, a German Jew who had come to the United States from Berlin. And this is all well documented. It's a footnoted article. In 1919, Bullitt was an assistant to President Wilson at the Versailles Peace Conference, which you just mentioned, right? That same year, Wilson and British Prime Minister Lloyd George sent him to Russia to meet with Lenin and determine if the new Bolshevik government deserved recognition by the Allies. Bullitt met with Lenin and other top Soviet leaders and upon his return urged recognition of the new regime. Well, Bullitt was actually at least one quarter Jewish, right? But he had a falling out with Wilson and left diplomatic service. In 1923, he married Louise Bryant-Reed, the widow of American communist leader John Reed. So there you go again. In Europe, Bullitt collaborated with Sigmund Freud, on a psychoanalytical biography of Wilson. When Roosevelt became president in 1933, he brought Bullitt back into diplomatic life. So we see there the, the, um, the fabric of, of William Bullitt, right? Oh, Wiki also points out that in 1939, French Prime Minister Edouard Dalidé informed Bullitt 
that French intelligence had determined that Alger Hiss in the United States Department of State was a Soviet intelligence asset. And Wiki claims that Bullet passed the information along to the State Department. I, I wonder where's the evidence of that, though. Well, well, this I, I know that there's evidence concerning um, Bullet's treachery and, and hand in 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 um, assuring Poland of U.S. government protection, which actually allowed Poland to assume a bellicose stance. And, and diplomatic position towards National Socialist Germany because that gave Poland and, and, and it's not only the English guarantee of protection but a, a further American guarantee of protection from against Germany or, or from Germany that gave Poland the, the, um, the confidence to, to assume that and here, here from Conservapedia it says that the 1935 funeral of Marshal Joseph Pilsudski in Warsaw, U.S. Ambassador to Moscow, William C. Bullitt, had given confidential assurance to the Polish government that the United States would stand by Poland in the event of a Nazi invasion. And I'm fairly certain that the source for that historically is the Pataki Papers. The Pataki Papers, Pataki was what was a Polish ambassador, and his papers that he left behind showed that his, his papers showed that a lot of this is true. Right. And, and we covered them last year. So and, and it just establishes sh- that Poland had no real incentive then to negotiate with Germany since Britain, France, and now the United States said, Hey, don't listen to the Germans. We'll, we'll kick the crap out of them if they bother you. Well, well, absolutely. Po- Poland had the confidence to assume a bellicose attitude toward Germany and, and a, a, um, a hard line because Poland had those guarantees. There's no doubt. It, it paved the way for the Second World War. There's no doubt. And I don't know if the the American people or, or even the Congress would have signed on to, to a deal like that at that time, right? Knowing that there was already a lot of hostility between Poland and Germany mostly because of the Versailles Treaty and the concessions of land that Ger- and, and, and German sovereignty over German people that the Germans were forced to, um, to cede to Poland at, at, at that time. Nazi propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels exploited that the information, once this was exposed, to portray the United States as a warmonger. And according to Ralph de Toledano, the State Department source who passed this information to the Soviets, you know, the, the, the Americans received this information from the Soviets also, and, and they had a pact with the Soviets at that time, and Alger Hiss had passed the information to the Soviets, who in turn per- turned it over to Germany, meaning information concerning Bullitt's assurance to the Polish government, right? So Alger Hiss was involved in that, right? All right. And continue with, do we want to talk about Bernard Baruch or Frankfurt, or shall we move on well, to Well, Well, yeah, you know, we, we spoke about Bernard Baruch at, at length, I think, in, in, in um, our Traders Within series. And, and he, he was, this says he was once called a speculator by a Senate committee. Well, well, he was a New York banker, right? He was a Jewish New York banker and a Rothschild agent. And, and, and 
He's giving the White House, the Roosevelt White House, advice on foreign policy. Well, well, what did you, would you expect the outcome to be? Bernard Baruch was a longtime ally of Samuel Untermeyer, right? I, ma- I imagine the advice was mostly along the lines of, if you want money, you're going to go to war with Germany. Well, well exactly. It, it's right. If you want an economic recovery, you're going to go to war and destroy Germany. There's no doubt. That, that was the Jewish policy which became evident with Untermeyer's declaration of war against Germany in 1932. And then Frankfurter, wasn't Frankfurter, he was on the Supreme Court for all those integration cases, wasn't he? Well, well Frankfurter was also, um, as we covered in, and discussed in, in the Traders Within series we did last year, he, he was also instrumental in putting... Alger Hiss and a lot of the other communists into high places in American government because he was a close advisor to Franklin Roosevelt. Hmm. Felix Frankfurter, uh, a lot of the communists... Say again, Bill? A lot of the communist treachery in American government, uh, which occurred during the Roosevelt administration can be traced to Felix Frankfurt. And he also was a Jew who Roosevelt appointed to the Supreme Court. Now, Conservapedia says that he was a relatively conservative and highly patriotic justice, and he wrote a decision that allowed schools to expel students who refused to say the Pledge of Allegiance. Well, that's not conservative and patriotic. That's just statist and controlling. Well, well um, evidently, conservapedia is compromised, right? <laughs> I, I would imagine Thomas Jefferson would say that compelling students to salute the flag and pledge allegiance to the flag, there's, you know, there, that's a violation of the freedom that the flag is supposed to stand for. Well, well right. Felix Frankfurter, a lot of his decisions, in, which he wrote in the Supreme Court, were apparently conservative right? Neocons today would think they were conservative, right? But his politics were actually very liberal. Absolutely. And Conservapedia even says that he sent many top law students to work on the New Deal. Amongst them were Dean Acheson, Benjamin Cohen, James Landis, Archibald McClellish, Thomas Corcoran, Lee Pressman, and of course, Alger Hess. And we discussed a lot of those characters in the Traders Within series that we did last year, and a lot of those characters were um, suspected or even avowed communists. Lee Pressman was a communist. Alger Hiss was a communist. Dean Acheson was a communist sympathizer. But there's um, no doubt the State Department and what was loaded with communists at, at what well towards throughout the Roosevelt administration, I mean, especially the war years. And we have Felix Frankfurter to thank for a lot of that. He, oh, he was the one that advised Roosevelt to appoint all those, all those people. Two more blurbs on him. It says, as a Harvard professor, every year he sent top students to work as clerks for Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes and Louis Brandeis, who was a Jew. And it says he was especially close to Brandeis, who gave him a secret cash subsidy. And then another one, Chief Justice William Howard Taft said of Frankfurter, quote, he seems to be closely in touch with every Bolshevist communist movement in this country. And passed himself off as a conservative Supreme Court justice. 
All right. Okay. To continue, Henry Morgenthau, an intimate of America's financial leadership, became Secretary of the Treasury. The New York Judge Roseman wrote the President's speeches, which constantly grew more hateful. Secretary of State Hall, that's Cordell Hall, right? Yes. Himself not a Jew, but married to a Jewess, gave press conferences the material to arouse the rest of the world. Finally, the Freemason Roosevelt clique of Washington Jews involved Poland, France, and England in Washington's long-planned policies. The sick warmonger in Washington had reached his goal of unleashing a worldwide conflagration. But things took a different course than Roosevelt had hoped. In Europe, one of his bastions after another fell, leaving England to fight for its very existence. Washington's arrogance toward Japan resulted in Pearl Harbor. In the notes of 11 December from Germany and Italy, Roosevelt suddenly found himself in a war that he had wanted others to wage, from which he had hoped to get the benefits. I had repeated opportunities in the weeks after Pearl Harbor to see Roosevelt on the movie screen and hear him over the radio. He was no longer an arrogant president, but rather a broken man with a flat voice who was no longer master of the situation he had brought about. He could not understand what had happened. He had not wanted actual war, but had hoped to keep in the background. He wanted American destroyers to fire on German submarines, but without an open declaration of war. He wanted to slowly and comfortably build up his military and only then attack us when necessary, perhaps in three to five years. His plans failed. He's probably regained his voice in the meanwhile, but despite his loud voice, his mills are grinding rather slowly. Germany can wait and see what will come from American war production. Well, well this, is the, this reflects the confidence that a lot of Germans had in the outcome of the war and the progress of the war in 1942. It, it looked pretty good for the Germans in 1942, right? Well, ultimately, though, if Germany had any hope of winning the war, they would have had to build a navy capable of getting across the Atlantic and physically invade America and knock America out of the war because Roosevelt and the Jews would have continued drafting five, ten million white Americans every couple of years, forming new armies and sending them over. If, if the Normandy landings had failed, they would have waited another year, tried again. If it failed again, they'll try again, they'll try again. And well, well, right, but we saw the treachery of the German general Spidel. Well, which allowed the Normandy landing to succeed, right? Yes. It, it's odd, and, and he was later rewarded. He was a Nazi general. He was later rewarded to, to be the supreme commander of NATO forces Europe. I mean, this man was clearly a traitor to the German cause, and he enabled Normandy to succeed. And, and if Normandy didn't succeed, there's no American victory in a war. Well, I imagine that they would, they, they would have fought on for 10 or 15 years, and the Jews wouldn't care if it took 15 years and 20 million American lives to grind Germany into dust. They wanted it accomplished. Yeah, yeah but in the meantime, I, I mean, with no American victory at Normandy, with no American landing at Normandy, it's very possible that, that Germany may have recovered and defeated the Soviet Union in the East. Well, ultimately, if it came to it, America probably would have launched a nuclear attack on Germany, wouldn't they? Well, well... Yeah, yes, that is ultimately possible, but that can only be speculated on, right? From what I've heard, an Italian diplomat was sent to the um, a German test site, and from his account, what he described, he saw a maybe a 10 or 15 kiloton German nuclear device detonated. 
He, he described the mushroom cloud. He described the scorched trees and what it looked like afterwards. And he was there because Mussolini wanted assurances from Hitler in late 44 that the situation could be turned around. And they wanted to know, you know, when can this be used against London or when can this be used against the Allied soldiers in France? And Hitler didn't want to consider using it against basically white Western people. And they were talking about constructing a second one and using it against the Soviet Union, but they never had the chance to do that. But they said that Hitler ruled out the possibility of using it against, you know, white Western Christians. I'm sure the um, Jews running America would have had no such qualms about dropping one on Berlin. Well, well, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm really not familiar with that history. I've read, uh, I've read articles about that in the past, but um, and and about Germany being real close to developing a nuclear bomb, but um, I, I'm really not. Uh, I haven't read enough to to be able to comment on it intelligently. It's clear that, Christ, that, that Adolf Hitler was a Christian who was not the monster that the Jewish media and Jewish propaganda power in the West had portrayed him to be. That, that's perfectly clear. If he was that monster, he'd have flattened London's entire civilian population in, in 1942, right? Absolutely. If he was that monster, he'd, he'd have um, thrown everything he had into wiping the British expeditionary forces out at Dunkirk. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of things Hitler could have done if he were that monster that he never did. It's, it's incredible that the, the American people are so blind as to let the media get away with that label. And I just wanted to mention, too, that the American Manhattan Project was not finally completed until after Germany was knocked out of the war. They took all of Germany's uranium resources and the top scientists brought them back to America and looked at all of their work and had them basically finish the project. You know what I mean? Since the Americans have been working on their Manhattan Project, their nuclear weapons, since probably the, the mid-30s. I mean, it wasn't something they just cooked up in 41 after Pearl Harbor. They've been going at it for a while with minimal success. It wasn't until they captured Germany's resources and their industrial, you know, facilities, their uranium refining, and their wherewithal and their knowledge that they were able to finally complete their project. And to continue on, Roosevelt's economic mismanagement in God's country is clear from the problems the United States is currently facing. Now, now listen to the, um, the, the, the disdain that the author has for America, right? Hmm. He, he, he had earlier referred to America as the land of boundless opportunity, right? Mm. He, he's basically repeating the Jewish propaganda about America. He, he's repeating it with, 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 in a pejorative manner, right? He's sure, by calling it God's it. country, he, he's saying that tongue-in-cheek. He's, he, he's using Absolutely. Absolutely. Since America's wealth means it has no problems with foreign reserves, one certainly would have expected that the warmonger or Roosevelt would have stockpiled important raw materials that America lacks, such as rubber and tin. That was not the case. America imported crude rubber from Indonesia, supplies from which were cut off in a few weeks as a result of Japan's conquest. The American public was surprised to learn that its reserves were sufficient only to last to the end of this year. There was a lively discussion in the press, followed by an excited debate in Congress. That could not change the fact that the United States had neither significant rubber plantations in the New World, nor did it have any significant efforts to manufacture synthetic rubber. And that is only part of the problem. The constant sinkings of American tankers along the East Coast led to fresh problems. 
the eastern states of the American Union with important industrial and commercial centers such as New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Bethlehem, Pittsburgh, Boston, Detroit, Toledo, and Chicago had been supplied with oil by tankers by sea routes from the south. I don't know if I would call Michigan and Ohio eastern states, but apparently this gentleman regards them as eastern states. Our submarines cut these routes. Tankers have been going down regularly for months. Few of us understand the effects our submarine warfare is having. In America, however, people understand clearly what the sinkings along the East Coast mean. It cuts the oil supply to the economically significant East and creates grave transportation difficulties. I think that economically speaking, the St. Lawrence Seaway and the Great Lakes make Ohio and Michigan eastern states, right? All right. Because they're so easily accessible from the Atlantic, right? Yes. Would you like to take over for point four? As a result of its rapid growth and its tendency to gigantomania, America has become a perversion of European culture. Although any other country could accept the loss of private automobiles, the people of the United States cannot. It had become part of daily life. In Europe, they could do without private automobiles because... Europe is based on small towns, small villages. Everything's close by. You could walk from your farm to your village to get the things that you need. You could ride a bike. And in America, because everything's so large, everything's so spread out, that's not really possible. Americans have become dependent on automobiles, right? That's what he's saying. One thing Europeans don't understand, they criticize America for a car culture. And apparently I'm, I'm learning now that this isn't a recent phenomenon. This has been going on, well, in 1942 even, they criticized our car culture. Well, like you said, you go to Europe, you can go to work, you live maybe two, 300 yards from where you work, or you work in a small shop in a village, and you may walk a mile or two a day, but everything's within a mile or two. In America, if you want to go to work, it's 15 miles down the road. If you want to walk, you better start the night before. So Every fourth just- American owns a car. The United States is a large country with widely separated cities. That alone made Americans dependent on the automobile, particularly in the Middle West and the West. Farmers are dependent on cars. Millions of trucks supply the big cities with food. Suddenly, the United States faces a revolutionary change in its transportation system. The transportation problems are to be solved by greater dependence on the railroads. Yet in recent years, the number of locomotives and freight cars has sunk as the number of cars rose. Washington has announced that pipelines were being laid from Texas to the north, but even in America, people openly say that such facilities would take at least a year and a half to complete. And the author, again, is confident that America would not be able to create the, the armaments and resources and, and use the resources necessary to win the war, right? Well, one thing, Bill, about the American car culture that gave us an inherent advantage, since we were producing so many cars, it was easy for those industries, those assembly lines, to shift over and make trucks that could transport troops, make half-tracks, make tanks, make all sorts of armored vehicles, where in Italy there was absolutely no car culture. I think they only had 100 50,000, maybe 200,000 cars in all of Italy in 1940. They had no real industrial base for motorizing or mechanizing their military. They produced less than, I think, 5,000 tanks in the whole war. Germany had a slightly stronger car culture. They were able to shift over a lot of industry and motorize about 15 to 20 percent. Well, well their, their Germany was... Germany under Hitler in the 1930s with, with the building of the Autobahn and the creation of the Volkswagen had actually just created a car culture, right? Mm-hmm. 
still their military, the, the primary method of transportation for German divisions were, you know, horse carts and infantry on foot. Only 20% of their divisions had half tracks and trucks. Although, like I said, they had just created a car culture. Yes, but if they had done so a decade sooner, they probably would have entered the war greatly advantaged. But then again, if if it had happened a decade sooner, it would have had to be under Weimar, and Weimar had no interest in doing such a thing for the German people. Absolutely not. We Germans can understand the conditions in the United States only when we consider the particular mentality of the North Americans. Since they live on a rich continent, they believe they have particular privileges and deserve all of life's advantages. That makes giving things up hard for them. And we see that today, right? I mean, it's just killing people. The thought of austerity kills Americans. And he is right about that. That is a particular um, fault in, in the American way of thinking. Well, we see that even more in Europe, though. I mean, they're burning down Athens because of talk of austerity. Well, well, now it is, but it wasn't that way in 1940s Europe. Hmm. Even things we uh, Europeans view as luxuries that we can do without. Given their wealth, they made things as easy as possible for themselves. They were proud of their superiority to Europe in this regard in contrast to their intellectual and cultural dependence on Europe. They did not understand how much they clung to superficialities. They spoke of a tin can culture. Here we go. Here's the slander that existed in the introduction to this, to this um, and the background to this article, right? They spoke of a tin can culture in a way incomprehensible to us. American housewives can no longer survive without tin cans. They have become so lazy as a result of these tin cans that they can no longer cook like German housewives. Now, now that's a fair assessment. And he's not really saying that American housewives can't cook without tin cans. He's saying that they can't cook like German housewives, right? When they came home in the evening after visiting the beauty parlor or working in an office and before going to a cocktail party, they opened a can or two for their family's evening meal. Now, now that's absolutely true of the urban culture in the United States in the 1940s. And today they just bring home a bag of McDonald's or a pizza. Absolutely. Overnight, they have had to give up their tin cans because American tin reserves were shrinking. For we Germans, would be, that would be a trivial matter, but the Americans saw it as an intolerable imposition. They cannot understand how various other products of civilization have vanished from the American market. Things such as electric refrigerators, washing machines and ovens, radios, gramophones and records, pots and other household items. And that all happened with the austerity forced on them in order to re-requisition raw materials for the war effort, right? Americans who believed that they would never even know a war was going on now have to start thinking like Europeans. They will have to pay taxes like we do. We, well, that, that, that's... Um, not a good reflection on, on European culture, right? We began by noting that Roosevelt's government had presided over a catastrophic economy. When he took office in 1933, his Republican predecessor had left a balanced budget, well, which is true. The Hoover administration had a balanced budget, and, and that's why the Jews hated it, right? He immediately began to spend money. He promised that his new deal would restore economic and social health. 
In fact, however, the New Deal threw billions of dollars out the window. Since he and his party were passing out money right and left, millions of voters had a personal interest in electing him a second and third time. But the national debt had risen by $60 billion by the outbreak of the war. Well, well, I remember you once said that in the old Roman Republic, before it began to degenerate into the mess it became, that if a politician or a senator, if a patrician, promised people money out of the public treasury, they would hang him instantly. Well, well, yes, that that's actually recorded by Livy, the great Roman historian, who, who said that as soon as a Roman politician, and this is the days before the Caesars, right? That this is the days before that before the um, the Roman Empire, which actually probably began about a hundred years before the Caesars. That the, um, that the people understood that when a politician promised money to any special interest group, that that politician was actually promising the money of the population in general, right? They understood that as stealing, right? Exactly. That the Romans understood that as stealing and immediately hung that politician. So they, they didn't... They didn't see him as somebody who, oh, it's so wonderful, he's in favor of these social programs. They recognized it as, hey, this man's a thief. Absolutely, and that's exactly what the man is. Every time a politician promises anybody anything, he is basically promising that he will steal that money from somebody else to give to those people. There's no doubt. The situation would undoubtedly had led to a revolt if Roosevelt had not unscrupulously been rescued by war. Without war, he would have been forced either to raise taxes or devalue the dollar. Either would have been a political disaster in peacetime that would have meant the end of Roosevelt and his clique. In actuality, the dollar had been devalued all through the 20s and 30s, right? Once war came, Roosevelt could vastly increase his economic mistakes. He got approval for an additional $65 billion for military purposes. And he has already said that he would need at least another $225 billion for the war. Just as he did at the beginning of his presidency, he is constantly talking about the vast measures that these enormous sums will pay for. Formerly, he spoke of job creation programs or work camps for the youth. Of course, they're not necessary anymore, right? Now he talks of huge numbers of airplanes, tanks, guns, and ships. But those familiar with his methods know that he has always talked big, but has not produced results. We Germans can therefore wait and see what deeds will follow his words. The economic mismanagement in the United States, which is simply beyond our understanding, well, well, he just doesn't understand the Federal Reserve, right, will cause even greater problems. Now that the American people are at war, Roosevelt believes he can take the risk of raising the income tax to a level of 35 to 40% for the middle class. We will see if he can do this without causing inflation. A German reader can only understand what this means when he realizes that a married American currently owes practically no income tax at all if his monthly income is equivalent to about 600 marks. The new taxes will overnight reduce the American standard of living to a point that, no one, that one will no longer be able to speak of American prosperity. Uh, of course, the new, new life was breathed into the economy after the war when the income taxes were drastically reduced 
and we had the boom in the 50s, right? Five, the war is not a matter of the people. The natural result is that the war is not as popular as the American government would like it to be. Pearl Harbor was greeted in the United States with remarkable indifference. And I'd like to say that we, we hear all these stories from all of these veterans. They signed up the day after Pearl Harbor, dropped everything they were doing, and they were an infantry hero. We never hear anybody who was drafted and who drove trucks or who just did something simple or who didn't want to join, but they, they wound up caught up in it. And my grandfather, he would tell you that he, he enlisted because if you enlisted, you got to pick where you went, and he didn't want to be in an infantry unit. He wanted to be in, He didn't want to be in the European theater either because he didn't want to fight fellow Europeans, so he wound up as a... Um, a support personnel in the Pacific, and he he um he did you know volunteer though he enlisted. But the American Army, if I'm not mistaken, was 65% conscript. Does that sound about right, Bill? That it was an overwhelmingly drafted military. Uh, I understand it was much more than 65% conscript, but I haven't researched it. But it, it seems though, when you speak to people today, they're they're all infantry heroes. They killed eight SS you know commandos single-handedly, and they enlisted the day after Pearl Harbor. I mean, have you ever encountered anybody that said that they, they um, were drafted and they wound up driving trucks? Hmm. I mean, there's no simple, ordinary, average, run-of-the-mill soldier. That They're all combat soldiers, which statistically, infantrymen are only about 15 to 20% of any military. So you, you should be meeting some truck drivers, some artillerymen, some people that weren't at the front. Pearl Harbor was greeted in the United States with remarkable indifference. In the weeks and months thereafter, the American press that naturally follows Washington's instructions tried to build enthusiasm for the war through every possible method. But the average American could not understand that he was in a war that was a matter of life and death. The press and government tried daily to fight popular attitudes, although they do not understand what they are supposed to be fighting for. It is gradually dawning on them that they face years of sacrifice and the United States will never again be a land of luxury. The fact that their army is a mirror of their nation also gives them cause to doubt. Roosevelt succeeded in building an army of several million soldiers, but even in May, their weapons were ludicrous. As much as possible, all weapons and supplies had been sent to England. The American military leadership and a significant part of the American press protested, with unbelievable stubbornness, however, Roosevelt continued these shipments even during the spring, even to the Bolshevists. American maneuvers were therefore carried out with completely inadequate equipment. Most soldiers had no tanks, I'm sorry, no weapons. Tanks and artillery were completely lacking. The uniforms were in poor shape. American newspapers regularly reported that soldiers mocked their generals. There were many deserters. Venereal disease spread. The draft followed a strange system. One class was in the 20 to 39 age range, the other 40 to 64. Formerly, only those were drafted who passed a medical examination. Since the examination could be done by a family doctor, however, many young Americans with prosperous parents simply bought their way out of military service by paying the doctor a sufficiently high fee or by bribing officials. As a result, the American Army does not make a good impression. And, you know, the American Army in World War II, they had a system whereby the lowest of the low were put in infantry units. The most intelligent people were basically put in units such as artillery, intelligence, logistics, support. America had an idea that logistics would be the, the best way to go by winning the war and that it would be a material war, contrasting with the Germans who basically put their most intelligent, talented, and capable people in infantry, armor, and artillery units. 
course, the risk is there, though, as the fighting drags out, you'll lose your best people. Since the overwhelming majority of the American population did not want to join the war, young Americans always asked me nervously before Pearl Harbor if I thought that the United States would end up at war. They clearly were afraid that they might have to put on their country's uniform. Even while I was interned, many American officials told me the enemy that they simply could not understand why they were fighting. Federal officials gave me the special editions of the New York newspapers that carried the notes from Italian and German governments of 11 December. Now, I'm assuming that Hitler's declaration of war speech was never published in full and no one saw it because it took 90 minutes for us to read. Imagine how many pages it would have taken in the New York Times. They weren't going to devote 20 pages to talking about Hitler unless it was No, no, nobody, no, I, I don't believe anybody in America had Hitler's declaration of war by this time, right? A- absolutely not. If they had seen it, they might have immediately sued for peace and said, well, we don't need the fight. They stammered that they still hoped the United States could still remain neutral. That is how naive the Americans are. They are like children playing with fire who do not think they may get burned. Their complete political immaturity is the only explanation as to why a sick man was elected president for the third time, even though there were no doubts as to the dangers of his policies. And if he had lived, they would have elected him for a fifth term. Well, well the country was heavily balkanized by this time. And 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 it was that the um, the, the Southern Democrats and, and the Northeast Catholics that put Roosevelt in power. I wonder why would white men in the South vote for Roosevelt? Was it just because he was a Democrat, and at this time they still hated the Republican Party with a passion? Well, well, you know, whites in the South voted Democrat religiously. Uh, I, I you could probably say through the 1970s. Uh, until Ronald Reagan. And then a lot of southern states still voted for Clinton, didn't they? Yes, they did. But I think we could um, accurately say that the southern love affair with the Democratic Party is basically over, for the white South anyway. Right. If there is a white South. that There is, but it, it's um, it, it's rapidly eroding. And, and that's the truth. Well, it's being eroded by design. They're flooding Texas with so many Mexicans that we could probably remove Texas as a southern state when we talk of southern states. And Florida has been come, become so cosmopolitan with so many northern and, and eastern Jews moving down to Florida and so many Mestizos moving in that Florida is more or less no longer a southern state. And even Virginia and North Carolina, I mean, Northern Virginia certainly is basically just a, an extension well, well, of Washington, D.C. And North, North Carolina has had so many transients move in from the West, the Midwest, the Northeast, so many Mestizos that it's basically, it might be removed from our, our def, definition of Southern states. There is no doubt that the, the, um, the white power base in the South is rapidly eroding, just like the white power base everywhere else. And it's by design. It's absolutely by design. But there's no doubt. And Virginia is. I, I've been to northern and eastern Virginia, and um, it, it's basically very cosmopolitan and, and filled with Negroes and mestizos. And it's, it, it, I mean, it reminds me of New Jersey in, in the 1970s. Now, now I, I've recently been to the Florida Panhandle, and the so-called redneck Riviera is filled with Negroes and race mixers. 
and, and I've seen it with my own eyes, and, and I couldn't believe it, but, but it's, it's what's going on in Panama City. So, so it's, um, right, the White Tower base in the south is, is rapidly eroding. It, it's, there's no doubt that um, Jeremiah 31 is in full effect. I mean, the house of Israel and the house of Judah are sown with the seed of man and the seed of beast, and, and that, that situation is very well advanced. Where are we? Point six. The president believes he can win. And this, you know, we see this strain of confidence in, in the German war effort and, and German victory all through this. But we also have to remember that this is a propaganda pamphlet, right? That this pamphlet was created for um, the purpose of giving material to propagandists during World War II in Germany, right? Since he is sick, he is guided by wishful thinking. He naturally does not think the Axis powers will win. He does not have the least idea that if we lose, communism will take over all of Europe. And isn't that exactly what happened? Leading American newspapers openly say that the United States does not care if red flags fly over Berlin, Rome, Budapest, Bucharest, Paris, and Madrid. Since Roosevelt thinks that he can come to terms with Bolshevism, he believes they will accept Anglo-Saxon control of the seas and that they will accept Washington as the capital rather than London. He has fantasies of policing the world's oceans. He has gathered the United Nations under his leadership, which includes not only the important enemy states, enemies of the German Reich, such as the USA, England, and the Soviet Union, and China, along with the Latin American states that declared war on us by Washington's orders. It also includes the exile governments of nations like Holland, Belgium, Luxembourg, Yugoslavia, and Poland that no longer exist. With unbelievable vanity, Roosevelt considers himself the head of this peculiar union which he sees as the way to realize... Dreams of world domination, what which is the same thing that the Americans were accusing and, and the Jewish media propaganda were accusing Hitler of aspiring to, right? World domination. So, so we see that history is written by the victory, by, by the victors, and, and the same propaganda existed on both sides, right? Although we can see the Germans, as I said earlier, if they were intending to dominate the world, they were certainly going about it in an odd fashion. They didn't start building up a navy. They had no four-engine, long-range strategic bombers. America was building thousands of these sort of bombers. If, if Hitler had intended on a campaign of world conquest, the first year in power, he would have ordered them to lay the hulls for, you know, 10 or 15 battleships, 10 or 15 battle cruisers, 5 or 10 aircraft carriers, because those take years to complete. You know what I mean, Bill? If he was thinking about a campaign of conquest in 1940 or whatever it might have been, he would have had a, a navy being built a massive navy in the mid-30s at the latest. Well, well you basically do not um, manufacture hammers if your design is to cut down trees, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. And since the Germans weren't intent on dominating the world or taking over anything, they didn't build a navy to rival the Royal Navy because they didn't see the need for one. The Soviets had more submarines in 1939 than the Germans. The Soviets were a threat to Baltic commerce. That's probably why Germany wanted a navy to keep open Baltic commerce. And they certainly didn't have any bombers 
with any significant range. They couldn't bomb the industrial regions of the Soviet Union. They could barely stay over Britain for 10 or 20 minutes before they had to return to France during the, the campaign in London. So I don't see Germany as having really assumed a war footing until, you know, the um, the total war speech of Goebbels in 43 when they dedicated everything to the war. Germany wasn't intending on a, a decade-long war of global conquest. They were hoping Absolutely that Britain, not. Britain would listen to reason and that the war would end in 41 or 40. And if Britain listened to reason, then America would naturally have followed suit and not join the war. I, I mean, that's... That that's the perspective of history from, from a German mind, and that was the the, the basic um, the the basic attitude of Adolf Hitler. That the perspective of of history and and what is right and just from a German mind, which believed that justice and and righteousness would prevail, and, and of course. We know that justice and righteousness certainly did not prevail in the Second World War, right? Well, how, of, how often do justice and righteousness prevail? I mean, if justice and righteousness prevailed, then Cain wouldn't have been able to slay Abel. Well, well, that's that. That's the lesson of history for the children of God, right? That that justice and righteousness can't possibly prevail unless Christ is King, right? Exactly, and. We go to the movies and we see a movie and the good guy always wins. And all too often, the good guy is someone who's just some Jewish contrived superhero or some Captain America, you know, World War II soldier. And by prevailing, he kills a lot of Germans and other white Christians in the process. Well, well, right. But what the German attitude reflects is that good Christians, even in their naivety, have faith in God and expect justice to, to prevail in, in all their trials, right? And and when we don't prevail, God is glorified, and and when we prevail, God is glorified. And that, David, David that, killed Goliath, attack, right? But it was meant to happen, you know. When David slew Goliath, and if Americans had been true, dedicated Christians, they would have stood alongside the Germans as they advanced on Moscow, and that would have been the end of Bolshevism. Well, well, if Americans were true, dedicated Christians, they would have advanced on Washington, <laughs> and, and and not on Berlin, right? I mean, come on. Point seven, the tonnage problem is the challenge for England and the USA that the, the author of the propaganda pamphlet again displays his, his naivety of the way the artificial Jewish economy works and, and doesn't believe that America will be able to build the shipping necessary to haul all of the armaments it needs to win the war over to Europe. I mean, that's the basic point here, right? There was a major problem with the um, tonnage war, and I have a book that details it. British shipping actually increased in 1940 and 41. It points out that as the German army was so successful on the land, and they overran the Netherlands, they overran France, Britain assumed control of all the tonnage, all the merchant ships of those countries, so the end result was that British merchant shipping actually went up about 30 or 40 percent during that time period. Well, well, if those ships are at sea, then Britain is the haven for them, right? Absolutely. And in fact, um, the Allied shipping losses to U-boats in 1940 were 2.4 million gross registered tons. In 1941, 2.3 million gross registered tons, and in 1942, 6.1 million gross registered tons. But during the same time, 
you know, the British shipping was actually increasing. It was higher at the end of each of those years than it had been at the beginning. The, the Allies lost 1,155 merchant ships in 1942, but they produced significantly more than that. So as fast as the Germans were sinking the ships, you know, three or four more were coming out. Roosevelt's problem is that events have not gone as he had naively hoped. That brings us back to submarine warfare, which from the first days of the war gave Washington serious headaches. Evidently, as you state, headaches not large enough. For more than two years, the Battle of the Atlantic has been seen by the American press as at least as important as the land war. The shipping problem is a major concern for Washington, especially since Roosevelt wants the United States to be the arsenal of democracy. Even if Roosevelt manages the impossible task of manufacturing the war materials his allies need, he still faces the problem of getting the material to England and the Eastern Front. American experts are still telling the American press that there is no immediate possibility of replacing the ships that are continually being sunk by our submarines. Roosevelt talks of the tonnage to be built by American shipyards. The experts know, however, that the capacity is lacking. Roosevelt talks of building new shipyards, but the experts in the USA have no doubt that a long time will pass before Roosevelt's plans can be realized. The highest figures named are 2.5 million tons a year. Those who are familiar with the American exaggeration, however, know that the final figures will probably be much lower. I don't know if we could obtain those final figures, right? The same is true of the other production statistics from Washington. According to all the evidence, the American war effort is in its earliest stages. German readers must realize that in a democracy, there are many difficulties involved in moving the economy from peace to war. American war production and evidently the Germans are far too optimistic here, right? American war production will begin to be at full strength only by the end of next year. In the meanwhile, transportation will be more of a problem for the United States than production. But Roosevelt has plans, even if the Axis wins. He thinks he will win the war regardless of what happens. If England loses, then Canada and all the other European possessions in the Western Hemisphere will fall into his hands. He also hopes that dollar imperialism will conquer South America. Washington's current plans are to bring everything between the Rio Grande and the Panama Canal under its control and to make South America economically dependent on the United States. I think we call that NAFTA. Roosevelt's plans in the event of an Axis victory will make clear to the reader the coldness with which he made his plans over the years, aided by his hypocritical speeches written by the Jewish federal judge, Roseman. Who knows what fate has in store for him? Many indications are that the war will end in terrible catastrophe for the United States. Perhaps this false messiah, the lackey of his Jewish allies, will be brought to justice by his own people. History, after all, is just. And again, we see German naivety and, 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 and actually honest optimism in, in believing that justice would prevail. Well, I mean, even in terms of basic weapons, the, the Germans, their weapons were more or less superior, but they never could make enough of them. Throughout the entire war, they only made about one million submachine guns in four years, America made almost two million. America made about 14 million semi-automatic rifles, while the Germans were still using basically bolt-action rifles until they had the Sturmgewehr, which was a fully automatic select-fire weapon. And 
I think the, the Germans didn't understand how quickly America could switch over to a war economy and just how much industry there was in this country. All the machine shops, the machine tools, the assembly lines, and the skilled talent, all the people that had been out of work in the 30s, suddenly they had work making weapons. Well, well, I really think that the Germans didn't understand how fluid the American economy could be if the banks were allowing cash money into the economy and, and how easily the American people would accept that artificially created, uh, uh, you know, printed on demand cash money, which it suddenly became awash with. Well, there's a factory, 2.2 million square feet, called the IX Center in Cleveland. Have you heard of it? It was. It began construction in 1942, and it was built in 1942. They completed it, and it produced a lot of B-29 bombers. It produced, um, at the time, it was mainly a tank factory, but later it was used for bombers, artillery pieces, etc. It built just a, a huge amount of weaponry for World War II, and this was, as I said, 2.2 million square feet. It was a massive assembly line, basically. And they, they threw that up in less than a year. It, it began construction in 42, and it was opened in 42. I don't think that the Germans could, they, they weren't able to comprehend how easy that things like that could happen in America. Well, well right, but, but it all depends on the, the, um, the tightening and loosening of the money supply. And, and that's exactly what happened when we agreed to go to war. Okay, I, I guess that's um, our presentation of this German propaganda pamphlet, and, and, and we see it's... it's um, it's right points or, or it's good points, and we see that the problems that the Germans had assessing American capability in in, in World War II, or, or I should say Jewish capability in World War II, right? They were steering our economy. Yeah. That they, they, they were leading us by the nose. There's no doubt. Thank you for listening, and, and praise Yahweh. I, I will be here. I, I'm not sure where I'm going to do next weekend's programs from now at this point, uh, I've had a few changes in schedule, and I don't know if I'm coming or going the end of next week. I'm, I'm not sure where I'll be. Uh, I may be in Harrisburg. I may be back home in New York. Um, Have you decided on the content? Well, well, next week, it's next Friday, it'll be Luke chapter 10, and next Saturday it will be to be announced. We could do that Why is America having so many problems article we didn't get to and talk about how our nation is cursed. Well, well yes, we could do that. That, that might be interesting and, and um, we'll, we'll speak about that during the week. Thank you for listening tonight. This is William Fink, org with, with, with um, Sword Brethren and praise Yahweh. I will be here next Friday with Luke chapter 10. Thank you for having me on. Praise Yahweh.